Thanks for listening to the High Street Young Adults Podcast. For more information and how to get connected, check out highstreet.org slash youngadults. Tonight we're going to be looking at one of the most dramatic conversion stories in the Bible. Now, if you're like me, you like dramatic stories. Most of us do dramatic story, do love dramatic stories, and we know if we just go through our Netflix watch history that we like dramatic stories, right? My wife and I loved a dramatic soap opera series on PBS a while back called Downton Abbey. Any Downton Abbey fans here? We would watch it, we got a few, yeah. A few of the guys are like, yeah, I watch it, okay, this is pretty good. No, we loved Downton Abbey and we'd watch it and it was just so captivating because there was just so much you know, drama in it. There were kind of bad characters who became good and there were good, cover, good characters who struggled and overcame those struggles and it's interesting to watch those stories. And of course the Bible's full of those stories but one of the most dramatic of the, of the stories that we find in the Bible is in Acts chapter nine. It's the story of Saul of Tarsus converting to Christianity and later becoming Paul. So we'll be in... Acts chapter 9, if you want to turn there and follow along with me, of course, it'll be on the screen as well. And as you turn there in your Bibles, let me kind of set the scene for you and give you a bit of context related to the story that we're about to read. This story takes place in the early days of the Christian church. The Spirit is moving in power and amazing things are happening for the cause of Christ and the kingdom is growing, but the kingdom is also meeting resistance. There are opponents to the faith, One of the most brilliant and energetic of the opponents to the faith is a man named Saul of Tarsus, who we're going to be reading about in Acts chapter 9. So let's start reading here in verse 1. Then Saul, talk about drama, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, this is what Luke calls Christianity, the way, I love that, isn't that cool? If he found any who were of the way, that is any who were Christians, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Once again, let me draw your attention to the dramatic language here that Saul is breathing threats and murder against Christians. He wants to go to the city of Damascus, and he wants to find any Christians there, men or women. He's not a chivalrous gentleman. He's not just taking them in. He wants the men or the women. And the women, he wants to bind them and drag them back to Jerusalem where they would most certainly be imprisoned. Perhaps they would be tortured or even killed. Please notice, Saul is not someone who's out there trying to debate the truths of Christianity. He's not trying to win people over intellectually as he later would as a Christian. His desire is to violently stamp out the faith. He wishes to harm Christians because of their faith. He wishes to end the movement. The Bible tells us that he stood by and approved of the murder of one of the early Christians named Stephen. He approved when Stephen was killed with rocks. Saul is a true villain. Every story needs a good villain. Saul's a good villain. And, you know, we can all understand Saul's villainy intellectually. We all look at the things that he did, and we know those are bad things, and so we can understand, yeah, that's not good. But to kind of get our hearts involved in this story, I'd like for us to put ourselves in the place of a first-century Christian in ancient Palestine. Let's pretend we're first-century Christians, and we are living out our faith, and we're excited, and we've got the Holy Spirit within us, and we see these incredible things happening, 
but we're hearing about this guy who hates us. He wants to imprison us, maybe torture us, maybe kill us. Maybe some people we know have been imprisoned, tortured, or killed as a result of Saul of Tarsus. What would our feelings be about this person whenever he came up in conversation? What would, we, what would our view of Saul of Tarsus be? If we're honest with ourselves, of course, we would say that we would struggle with hatred for Saul of Tarsus, wouldn't we? We'd struggle. We'd struggle with the commands of Jesus to love your enemies and pray for your enemies. I think we would struggle with that when we had this, this villain who was trying to stamp out our faith and hurt the people that we loved and hurt us. That's what we would usually see. But I want to compare what we would see as humans when we looked at Saul of Tarsus with what God saw when he looked at Saul of Tarsus. First of all, God saw Saul's villainy. He understood Saul's evil better than we do, or we could. And God burned with righteous indignation at Saul's villainy. But God didn't see Saul only as a villain. God also saw in Saul a soul that he had created in his image. When God looked at Saul, he saw a soul that could be redeemed because there is no sin greater than the cross. When he looked at Saul, he saw a man whose abilities could be used to take the gospel outside of the Jewish world into the Gentile world. When God looked at Saul of Tarsus, he saw a mind that he could inspire to pen some of the most important pieces of literature ever written. That's what God saw when he looked at Saul. He saw the villainy, but he saw the potential. And he saw a soul that he could redeem. You know, in our lives, we will inevitably encounter people who will treat us poorly. We will inevitably encounter people who will hate us. We will probably encounter people who will threaten to harm us in some way. We're going to have those people in life. And we're going to be threatened to view them with hatred. We're going to be threatened to, or we're going to be tempted to not want to pray for them, not do good for them. And so what we have to do is we have to remember how God looks at people, even evil people, so that we can see them the way that God sees them, as souls that can be redeemed, as people who can be used for the kingdom and for God's good. And once we change our thinking to view people the way that God views people, we can be empowered to pray for them, we can be empowered to seek the best for them, to do good for them, and to love them as God loves them. Maybe today you feel like you couldn't draw close to God because of certain things in your life and certain problems in your life. Please remember how God views you. You're probably not as bad as Saul. I hope you're not. So, God's viewing you as a soul that he loves and he wants the best for, and a soul that he can use to better his kingdom and to further his kingdom. Okay, let's continue reading the story here. We'll start in verse three. As he, Paul, or Saul at this point, journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I think Saul probably had an idea who this was, right? 
but he just wants to make sure, and he's freaking out, I'm sure. And so he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He had a powerful encounter with the risen Christ. He'd been an opponent of Christ, but that encounter with Christ in his power made him a servant of Christ in a moment. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. What the Bible is telling us here is that he stood up and he couldn't see. He was more or less blind, and so he had to be led the rest of the way to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now that's the type of experience that'll get your attention, right? In fact, the term road to Damascus is still a term that you'll hear used talking about kind of when you see the light and make a dramatic change in your life. It's good to take particular notice in this story of the question that Jesus asked Saul. He could have asked this question in a number of ways. He could have said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He could have said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? He could have used more intimate terms. He could have said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my friends? Why are you persecuting my family? That's not what he said. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We would do well to remember that any persecution of the church in any form is a persecution of Jesus himself. Now, usually when we think of persecution of the church, we think of outside forces. We think of government and people who are opposed to the church and so on. But what I want us to do tonight is look at ourselves for a moment as potential persecutors of the church. You see, many of us, myself included over the years, can persecute the church and have persecuted the church in little ways. We can have a backbiting or gossiping attitude. We can have a whiny attitude, talking about things that are trivial, that don't really matter. We can take benefits from the church and not offer anything back to the church in the form of financial giving or in the form of time and energy that we could commit to helping the church in its mission. And here's a big one. We can view church services as really objects of our critique. Objects of our critique. That's when we go to a church service and we're watching everything and we're thinking, okay, this is pretty good. And we're just kind of thinking about what we like and what we don't like. We're all tempted to do this, aren't we? You can just listen to the conversations that happen after a church service. It's like, did you like it? Yeah, it was pretty good. Oh, I like the sermon today, things like that. We can view worship services as an object of critique and not as what they are, which are times that we come together to connect with God. You see, we can all be persecutors of the church, even those of us who are involved in the church and who love the church. So we have to evaluate our lives and make sure we're not persecuting the church because, hear me out, whenever we persecute the church, even in a minor way, we're persecuting Jesus himself. He directly identifies with his church because he lives in the church and he uses his church as an instrument to accomplish his kingdom goals in the world. 
But we can also view Jesus' identifying with the church here in heartening terms, right? We can, we can understand this as something that should encourage us because Jesus directly identifies with us in the church. He offers us that divine life through the Holy Spirit. Of course, we must embrace it for our own happiness and holiness. Okay, let's keep reading. Let's go to verses 10 through 18. So Saul is in Damascus now, and now we're gonna switch over to a new character called Ananias. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, that is a Christian disciple, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. So that's the name of the street, like Eastgate Road or something like that. So he says, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. This is kind of funny here. Ananias has heard of Saul, right? Saul is a villain in the Christian world. So Ananias answered, and you can just kind of hear him thinking, okay, God's giving me an order, but this is pretty nerve-wracking because I've got to go talk to this bad guy. So Ananias says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He not only knows about Saul, he knows what Saul is doing in Damascus. He's there to get Christians. And now Ananias is, go, is, is ordered to go and talk to him. But the Lord said to him, go. You know, God's commands don't change. We can argue with them all day but the commands still say the same. He says, go to Ananias, and Ananias objects. But the Lord says, go, but he does give Ananias an explanation here. He says, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias obeys. Verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, Let's pause just for a second there. That's an enormous kindness to show Saul, isn't it? Ananias knows what type of person Saul has been. He knows the things that he has done, and he knows the mission that he was on when he came up to Damascus. And when Ananias went to visit him, he said, brother, Saul. That's a kindness that Saul was not due, but it's that heart of Christ himself that Ananias was showing. He says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes, that is Paul's eyes, something like scales, and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. This is one of the weirder, kind of grosser moments in the Bible. He stood up and like something literally fell out of his eyes and hit the ground. And then he could see. And so then they took him and he was bad not, uh, baptized. So let's take a moment to consider the faith and bravery of Ananias. He did something truly remarkable in approaching Saul. You know, it's easy to think, well, if you had an order directly from God, we would do it, wouldn't we? Well, the Bible's full of orders directly from God, and we have trouble with it. And think about Ananias. He had had this vision, this powerful vision, and he, he, he knew that this is what God wants him to do, but he still had to go to that house. And he had to go to that room that Saul of Tarsus was in, and he had to see this person, this villain, kneeling on the floor, and he had to walk over to him, and he did. And he put his hand on him just as Jesus commanded, and he called him brother. This took enormous bravery, enormous courage, and enormous moral 
strength. And I think it's good for us to contemplate this for a moment because this can inspire us to being courageous ourselves in our Christian lives. You see, this was a church that was really persecuted, this early church. They faced serious struggles. They faced torture and death. We don't face that type of thing as Christians in 21st century America. All we face is maybe some awkwardness usually, right? Again, you can be persecuted for your faith. Don't get me wrong, in the United States, you you can. But we don't face the type of persecutions they do. In fact, we can be cowed away from doing gospel work just because of our fear of rejection, our fear of awkwardness, our fear of offending someone. We need to take a page from Ananias' book. We need to embrace the kind of boldness and courage that these in the early church had and the love for enemies that people in the early church had. If we're always in this culture war with people around us and always combating the people around us who don't agree like us, who don't agree with us, we can't reach them. We need to have an attitude that is Christ-like and that seeks to serve and reach the world around us with boldness and with courage, but with grace and love as well. Okay, now let's finish up here this passage by reading verses 19 and 20. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. So Saul got some food, he spent some days with the Christians in Damascus, those, of course, that he was coming to bind and bring back to Jerusalem for a terrible fate. He spent some time with them, they accepted him, as Ananias had. And after these things, he immediately got to work, and his career, of course, is one of the most Amazing in Christian history. He did truly great things for the kingdom. And to wrap up tonight, I want to turn your attention to a a different passage. I want to turn your attention to a passage that Saul, this person, wrote later on in his career. When he got chosen the name of Paul, so he's going by Paul now, he wrote a number of letters to the Christian church at Corinth. And this was a, a church that was struggling in many ways, And Paul, in his writings, attempts to help them come more fully into the light of proper Christian fellowship with one another. And in one of those letters that he wrote to the Corinthians, he said something very theologically profound. It's a verse that many of you are familiar with. But I want us to think tonight a little bit about what this verse must have meant for Paul. I'm referring to 2 Corinthians 5.17, which says this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Paul wrote those lines knowing well what it meant to be a new creation in Christ. He had been one of the most fierce antagonists of the church, and he became one of the most fierce proponents of the church. This is a dramatic story because it's got a great villain and a great hero. It's the same person. And he was turned into a hero by the greatest hero of all who stepped into his life in a powerful moment, in a blinding glare. And he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he changed his heart so that he stopped persecuting and started serving the church. So I want us to take some time tonight to consider and contemplate some of the things that we can learn from this passage. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes and just kind of meditate on a few of these things tonight. Let me kind of guide your thoughts and prayers for a moment. First of all, I want to ask you this. Are there people in your life 
that you look at as a human would and not as God would? Do you have people in your life that you struggle with hating? Is anybody coming to mind? I want you to take some time and consider that person who came to mind or those people who came to mind as God considers them. Look at them as God looks at them for a moment. As souls who can be redeemed. As souls that he loves that were created in his, in his image. As souls that can do great things for his kingdom. These are people God loves. He's calling us to love them. So let's, let's look at them that way. And let's take a silent moment to pray, all of us. Let's pray for them silently. And ask God to help us view the people around us, even those that we struggle with. And even those that bother us. Let's take a moment to pray and ask, us, ask God to help us see them the way that he sees them. Okay, another thing I'd like us to consider. I want you to examine your heart as you sit there with your eyes closed, and I just want you to think about ways that you may persecute the church. Many of us do in, in very small ways. You have an attitude towards some of your Christian brothers and sisters that you shouldn't. Do you speak poorly? Do you speak evil of some of your Christian brothers and sisters? The Bible says explicitly, speak evil of no one. Are you not contributing the way that you should be contributing to the church? Look at your own life and consider ways that you might be persecuting the church and remember that those small persecutions of the church are in fact persecutions of Christ. Now let's ask God to help us, take a moment of silent prayer and ask God to help us to deal with those persecutions and help us to be empowered to overcome them and to be better. And finally, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask if you've ever experienced this new life that Christ offers, this new life that Paul wrote about in 2 Corinthians when he said all things had become new, that he was a new creation, and so was anyone who comes to Christ. I want you to examine your heart. Have you, have you come to Christ and experienced that new life that he offers with all things being made new and with the opportunity in that new life to do good for others and to build God's kingdom? Have you done that? If you haven't, I want you to invite, I want to invite you to just pray with me here in just a sec. You know, becoming a follower of Christ and accepting him in your life is as easy as turning from your sinful ways and wanting to follow the ways of God and believing that Christ died for your sins and was resurrected. And then you start to follow him. It's as easy as that. If you've never done so before, I invite you to start a new life tonight. Just pray with me. A very simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died for my sins and rose from the grave. I want to turn from the wrong ways in my life and I want to follow you. I pray this in your name. Amen. You know, if you made that decision tonight to become a Christ follower, I want to invite you to get in touch with us. You text 94,000, is that right? 
Text PRAYED to 94000. You can get in touch with us. We would love to encourage you on this new journey that you're starting, just as the believers in Damascus encouraged Saul as he started this Christian journey. We'd like to do the same for you and just help you as you start that out. Thank mm-hmm. you.